Look in the back of your prayer sheet today and you'll notice an outline of our study this morning. I'm concerned about the quality of family life in our church and our society. So I want to address that issue this morning by looking with you in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. This is a section rich in applicational possibilities, but we want to concentrate on applications relevant to family life. Verses 17 to 24, in those verses, Paul appeals to us to no longer walk or live as the Gentile, the pagan world apart from Christ lives, but instead to live according to the truth as it is in Jesus. And then in verses 25 to 32, he lists for us five specific examples of what the truth in Jesus is. We are all social creatures. We tend to take cues from those around us. When wide ties are in, we get wide ties. When narrow ties are in, we get narrow ties. When the uh, skirt lengths are supposed to be calf, mid-calf, then we uh, lower the hems. When they're supposed to be knee-high, we raise the hems. Now, patterning, our, patterning ourselves after others in terms of clothing fashion is generally moral, morally neutral. But patterning ourselves after the world around us in terms of relationships that we have is going to be devastating to us. Paul tells us in verse 17, This I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, those who don't know God, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He says in verse 18 that the root of the problem of the non-Christian world is a hard heart. God has made his truth known to all men, but men have rejected that truth, they have become hard-hearted in spite of the fact that their religious behavior might belie their true condition. And two things have resulted. One is a benighted mind, which he describes in verse 18. The second is a, uh, an immoral lifestyle, immoral actions, as he describes in verse 19. Because of the hardness of heart, people's minds have uh, been alienated from God. And people in the non-Christian world don't understand truth. They don't understand reality. And part of the, of the pathetic tragedy of it all is that they don't understand that they don't understand. You can look and see the ways in which the values of the world are perverted. We can think of the uh, fact that many men pursue a career and success in that career in a way that obviously is damaging to their family life. Yet let me read for you the obvious kind of truth from the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 15, 16, and 17, 
Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. It's obviously better and would make us happier to have a harmony at home and not quite as much money than to have that success and come home and fight with your family and children every night. And yet because the, the minds of people apart from Christ are darkened, we see many, many people doing this sort of thing. We see the perversion of values in other ways. It's obvious from the priorities that parents in the world around us choose for their children that athletic success and academic success are more important than character and spiritual development. You weigh the amount of time and effort and money putting into academic and athletic success. You weigh that against the effort put into spiritual and character development. And you see a gross inequality between the two, which reveals to us the true values. We see a perversion in, in uh, choosing pleasure as a, one of the highest gods. I read a report of a newspaper in Detroit that offered families $500 to have their TVs taken out of their house for one month and to report back to see the effect it had upon them. And in each of these families, they reported that the absence of the television greatly increased communication between husband and wife, their love life, and their, uh, the communication between parent and child. But at the end of the month, three out of the four families went back to as much or more TV watching than they had before. It's obvious that pleasure, passively sitting in front of a tube, or for others of us, pursuing more active kinds of hobbies, is more important than developing quality relationship with with, uh, wife and children. The world around us has a perversion of values. We are told that that it's important that we learn to be assertive, And to stand up for our rights. Because getting your own way is more important than serving other people. Paul says you didn't learn Christ in this way. Don't walk the way the pagan world around you lives. They're darkened in their understanding. They don't know what life is really all about. So don't take your cues for your behavior from them. In verse 19 he describes the immoral lifestyle. Having become callous... They have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every impurity with greediness. Sensuality can take a sexual form, but it can also be in terms of drugs or alcohol or music or or any other of the kinds of things we use to titillate our senses. Now, it's true that in our own day, because of the Christian influence over Western civilization for over uh, 1,900 years, that for many people... Their lifestyle is uh, more civilized. Their sin is not quite as uh, gross as the kind of sin that Paul was describing of those engaging in sexual orgies, drunkenness in his own day. And yet today, with the rapid increase of immorality and pornography and permissiveness in the media and and drug and alcohol abuse, uh, we in many quarters are rivaling this old kind of pagan lifestyle. But for many of the people in our own society, their lifestyle is not quite like that. But they're perverted in their morality nonetheless. They take different forms of of sin, maybe materialism, maybe racism, or maybe just a self-centered concern for oneself only and a total neglect of concern for the the, uh, 
physically needy and be emotionally hurting around them. Or maybe materialism or hedonism in its various forms. Well, Paul says in any case, you as Christians did not learn Christ in this way. And so he describes for us in verses 22 to 23 what the new way of life, according to the truth as it is in Jesus, should consist of. He says that there are three basic components. First, that we put off the old self. Secondly, that we be renewed in the spirit of our mind. And thirdly, that we put on the new self, the new man. He says, first of all, there comes a conscious decision which is repeated day after day, several times a day, to lay aside the old self, to say no to that pagan lifestyle, because we realize that it's part of our former manner of life. We're not trapped into being the same old people that we used to be. We're new creatures in Jesus Christ. Now, it may be that you used to always get angry and irritable and say nasty things when you didn't get your own way. And it may be that you're tempted right now to do that. But as a Christian, you don't have to. You can put off the old self because it does belong to the past. You're a new person in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be locked into that old pattern anymore. Now, we can't uh, determine what kinds of temptations we undergo, and yet we can determine what kinds of temptations we give into. As Martin Luther said, you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep her from building a nest in your hair. And as Christians, we have new power. We can say no to that old way of life. And Paul gives us a motivation for doing so because he says that that the old way of life is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. The end result is corruption, and the way to get there is through deceitful lusts. Our lusts lie to us. They make all sorts of empty promises that can't be kept. Much like Satan lied to Eve in the Garden of Eden when he said to her, Take of that fruit. It'll make you wise. You'll become like God. Sure, God's told you not to eat, but he didn't know what he's talking about. And look at how delectably delicious it it appears. And she and her husband ate. They they found that it was a lie. And the whole of creation fell because of that action. Satan would not have gotten very far if he'd said to her, "Uh, I, I hate God and I hate you. And I want to destroy you, so I want you to take that fruit and eat it. And if you do, then then all of history will be changed and, and endless pain and misery will come upon millions of people. Death will enter. The ground will be hard to work. Uh, people will die of disease and famine and, and uh, uh, all sorts of misery will come upon them because of that action. But go ahead and do it. She would have laughed. But he appeared with a, a deceitful lie. In the same sort of way, our lusts appeal to us. They promise us life. Go ahead and get angry. You deserve it. It'll feel good. Say something nasty. And then give her the silent treatment. Withdraw. Make her pay for it. It'll feel good. So our lust appeals to us. It promises us life. But the end result is corruption. We give in to that kind of lust. And what happens? Well, the rift between husband and wife widens. You end up saying something that you regret and causes pain that maybe never is healed. 
and dealt with. Because the lie, uh, the lie of the lust brings corruption. It doesn't promise us. It doesn't bring the life that it promises. So the first step in living the life according to the truth as it is in Jesus is to put aside the old self. The second thing Paul says in verse 23, that we should be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We've already seen that the world around us is perverted in its values, its understanding of reality. And it's essential that we do not take our cues for living from the non-Christian world. Furthermore, we have the lusts of our own, uh, we have the deceits of our own lusts appealing to us, giving us all sorts of lies. We need desperately to understand the truth about ourselves, about God, about how people are supposed to live. We need a determined commitment to renew our minds in the scriptures. We need to make a, a priority of church attendance, of involvement in a growth group. And we uh, hope many of you check the uh, registration form today that you'd be interested in that. We need to figure out for ourselves our own plan that works for us for, for personal study of the scriptures. Furthermore, we need, according to Psalm 1, to memorize the words so that we can meditate on it day and night as we walk the dog, as we drive to work, as we wash the dishes. And through a concerted effort, as we, we get the scriptures into our thinking and into our mind and become a part of our being, and our minds are renewed so we know what things are really true. And fathers, we need to take responsibility in our own homes. The scriptures say that we are the heads of our homes. We need to make sure that the minds of our whole families are renewed in the truth of God's word. We need to be the one to make a priority of church attendance and growth group attendance and and get the kids to the youth group uh, meetings. We need to, in our own homes, to to establish some sort of routine for uh, teaching the Bible, study of the Bible in our own families, geared at the age level of our children. We have to realize, according to chapter 6 of this book, that the responsibility for the spiritual nurture of children rests upon us as parents. It doesn't rest upon the church or the Sunday school, as important as these are to supplement what we, what we can do at home. And if we're not having that kind of uh, input in our, the lives of our children and of our wives, we need to ask ourselves why. Is it because we don't understand the right values of things? Do we need to redirect our courses? If we're lazy, we need to shape up. If it is, as I suspect for many of us, we're afraid. We feel inadequate and don't know what to do. Then by all means, let's admit it to one another. Let's get the assistance we need from other brothers to take the lead in our own homes. So Paul says that first we lay aside the old self. Secondly, we be renewed in the spirit of our mind. But thirdly, we need to put on the new self. It's not enough to put off the old. We have to put on the new. We have to start living according to the righteousness and holiness of the truth. And notice the contrast between 22 and 24. In 22, we have uh, the old self, which is corrupted through the, the uh, lusts of deceit. In 24, we have the new self, which is created according to the uh, likeness of God uh, in the righteousness and holiness of the truth. God's way of righteousness and holiness is in accordance with truth. As we submit ourselves to that kind of pattern of life, 
we will find that instead of the frustration and the conflict and the boredom and the uh, these kinds of things that result from the corruption of the flesh, we will find our lives gradually being filled with beauty, with harmony, and with wholeness. God's the one who made us. He knows how we're to operate. And as we walk according to his righteousness and we walk according to truth, our lives will be progressively more and more whole. Well, what is this kind of lifestyle of putting off the old and putting off the new, putting on the new? Well, Paul elaborates some examples for us in verses 25 to 31. First of all, he says in 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. It's not enough to stop lying. We also have to speak the truth. Put off falsehood, put on truth speaking. I'm reminded of Psalm 15, which speaks of the righteous man who will swear to his own hurt and will not change. In other words, he's the one who makes a promise. And he finds out that the thing he's pledged to do is not as fun as he thought. He doesn't back out. He says, I promise, so I'm going to keep it up. He makes a contract in business and he follows through even though he finds out he's going to lose money if he does so. Because he's pledged and he's a man of his word. The man of righteousness who's walking in according to the, with the truth as it is in Jesus is the one who, when he says, I pledge to love, honor, and cherish, cherish you till death do us part, doesn't really mean I, plan, I will uh, love, honor, and cherish you until conflict do us part. And that's what the world today is saying, whether they admit it or not. And the righteous woman, when asked by her husband, is anything wrong, doesn't say dramatically, Nothing is wrong when what she really means is you better believe something's wrong and you better figure it out figure it out, or you're going to be in the doghouse, you creep. If our marriages are to be healthy, they have to be built upon honesty and openness, the speaking of truth and not lies and coded messages and befuddled communication. Paul tells us a second example of living according to the truth as it is in Jesus in verses 26 and 27. He says, Be angry and yet do not sin, and do not let the sun go down in your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. We are to control our anger, to manage it properly, and to heal conflicts quickly. And the person who is never angry is not really Christ-like. That person has become passive and is more like the Hindu yogi for whom all of the world is illusion. And he's not upset over anything because nothing is really happening out there. There's nothing to be bothered by. The one who is Christ-like is more like uh, Jesus himself who, when he saw the money changers corrupting the temple of his God and Father, turning it into a, a commercial enterprise, he went and chased them out and made a whip and and uh, uh, ridded the temple of them and their animals. Now, there are times with my children when I get angry at them, and I think rightly so, when they are uh, uh, deliberately cruel and mean to one another, as they will be. I think it's right for me to be angry. But it's so easy for that anger over their sin to turn into anger over the fact that I'm bothered that they're fighting. They're upsetting my schedule and my comfort. Paul says, be angry, but don't sin. And above all, he says, deal with the conflicts quickly. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Because if we don't deal with them quickly, we're going to give 
uh, an opportunity to the devil. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, he appeals to the Corinthians and he says, the uh, uh, man who is an offender but has repented, you are to forgive and restore in order that no advantage be taken of us by the devil because we are not ignorant of his schemes. He loves a fight. He loves the flare-up of tempers. It's so easy then to appeal to our pride and whisper in the ear, don't be the first to forgive. It's the other one's fault. Withhold uh, forgiveness and make him grovel in the dirt before you say, I forgive you. Or it's so easy to appeal to our uh, natural desire for revenge and to whisper in our, our ear, he was wrong and make him pay for it. Withdraw. Give him the silent treatment. Say something nasty. Withhold your love and affection. But make him pay. And as we give in to those and our weakness, and we find, some find, too late, that that punishment of the mate was the very thing that, that drove the, the uh, mate into the arms of somebody else who was more understanding. Or created just an aloof coolness to settle down over the marriage. Paul says, heal the conflict quickly. Don't give in to the temptation to punish. If you're only 5% wrong and the other's 95% wrong, well, swallow your pride and and be the one to initiate uh, the resolution of the conflict. Don't let it continue because Satan will take advantage of that laughing behind your backs and he'll drive you further and further apart. So Paul says that we need to manage our anger, heal conflicts quickly. In verse 28, he gives us a third example of a life according to the truth as it is in Jesus. He says, Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Notice again the the same pattern, put off stealing, put on sharing. As I see it, there are three levels of behavior that are possibly implied here for us. One is selfish, uh, is uh, dishonest selfishness. The person who's the thief is dishonest and he's selfish. All he wants is for himself, so he steals. The second possibility is putting off stealing, but being honestly selfish. This is the one who uh, labors, but only for himself to gain more and more things for himself. The third possibility is honest sharing. This person puts off the stealing, but he also puts on the sharing. And he works hard enough so that he has something to share with him who has need. And I think that too many of us as Christians are satisfied with level two. We've put off the stealing, but we're basically still selfish. We're honestly selfish, but just selfish. And I find it very penetrating to ask myself the question, what kind of example am I being for my children? Oh, I'm sure that they see me as an honest person, but do they see me as a selfish person? Do they see me with a demonstrated charity about the way I live? I'm afraid that too often they don't. So I've been take, we, uh, when we had the love loaves this fall, we made a concerted effort to explain each time we put a coin in why we were giving to poor people who don't have enough food. As I was working on this passage this week, I 
made up my mind that I want uh, in the future, every time I write a check to support the work of the church, every time I write a check to support one of the missionaries that we support, I want to share that with my children and pray over it with them so they can see the commitments that we have to God's work and to sharing his truth with other people so we can demonstrate sharing with others. And as they get older, uh, I'm concerned that I might be able to find ways in which we can meaningfully minister as a family to demonstrate a, a lifestyle of giving and serving and sharing other pe- with other people. Verse 29 I find to be the most searching of these specific examples and the most difficult. Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. James chapter 3 says that he who is able to control his tongue is perfect. So difficult is it to control our speech. And notice the same pattern. We're to put off the unwholesome word and put on that which is good for edification. We need to put away all kinds of foul talk. And we need to realize that saying to somebody, you turkey, is probably not all that much better than saying you blankety blank blank blank. Because the intent is destructive. We need to realize also that unwholesome talk is just not a, a selected list of profanities and vulgarities. But unwholesome talk is anything that is destructive rather than constructive. For some of us, unwholesome talk most commonly takes the form of a negative spirit, continual criticism of everything. Some of us tend to ruin the lives of our family, take all the fun and joy out of living because we're always harping on the negative side, reigning in everybody's parade, pointing out all the wrong, and uh, before we even try anything, everything is uh, uh, it's all going to fail anyway. For some who tend to do this unwittingly, they spoil the attitude of their children towards the church and through that towards God himself because they always point out all the wrong things that, that people in the church, particularly leaders, do. And I uh, am quick to admit that we give you plenty of fuel for the fire if that's your tendency. Others of us have a problem with sarcasm. And our unwholesome words most uh, commonly take that form. We live in an age that's very sarcastic. It's very in to be cynical. You look at the most successful comedians today, people like Rodney Dangerfield, and their routines are filled with sarcastic types of comments. Now, it might be very clever to say to your wife, uh, if you keep eating like that, I won't have to go to the circus to see the fat lady. But I can guarantee that such comments are not endearing and they're not going to build peace and harmony in the home. Sarcasm is like a, a bucket of water poured upon the, the, the flame of affection and warmth at the home, in the home. How often we unwittingly use sarcasm and, and destroy the self-esteem of our children through cutting them down, not even realizing that we're doing it. Paul says that we should put aside all unwholesome talk and we should seek to uh, speak that which is edifying. And notice that he has uh, two instructions concerning edifying speech. He said it should be edifying or building up according to the need of the moment. And secondly, that it may impart grace to those who hear. Our aim should be to build up, to make life pleasant, to, to give grace to our hearers. 
and to meet the need of the moment. Now Romans 12:15 tells me that the need of the moment meeting the need of the moment means I need to learn to be sympathetic. Paul tells us there, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. I remember in college when I was struggling with my own emotions and trying to get in, in touch with them and sort my own life out. There were many times in which I wanted to uh, talk on a deep and meaningful level with my friends and being frustrated because all they wanted to do was banter back and forth with joking. Now, joking can meet the need of the moment at times. Joking with somebody can say to the, to the person, I like you, you're important to me, I'm, I'm going to be your friend. But joking at such instances is not edifying. I know that I'm guilty of the same sort of thing. At times when, when my wife uh, wants to talk about something serious, and it happens to also uh, include pointing out some of my faults, uh, which are many, I tend to get very uncomfortable and nervous and defensive, and, and I'll find myself starting to crack jokes, hoping to lighten the mood and change the subject. And yet such comments are not edifying. They don't meet the need of the moment. And if you don't believe me, ask my wife. <laughs> As I have analyzed the interaction between husband and wife, I think that the need of the moment uh, often is for sympathetic listening. As I analyze the kinds of listening to go on, I think there are three basic kinds. One I describe as half-hearted listening. This is the kind when the wife comes and says, Honey, I need to talk to you about something. He's reading the newspaper and he says, Okay, what is it? And he keeps his newspaper in his hand and he communicates to her loud and clear, I'm sure it's nothing important because your problems are never important. Never important enough for me to, to put down the newspaper. A second kind of communication is what I call passive communication. When such requests for talking or made, he puts down the newspaper, but his responses consist mostly of, uh-huh, yes, mm-hmm. And she's saying in her mind, is he really listening to me? Maybe he's thinking about what he was reading or about a ball game. I wonder if he even understands what I'm talking about. Does he accept me for thinking this way or feeling this way? He probably thinks I'm some sort of weird, neurotic female. What she craves is some kind of understanding and acceptance. And indeed, all of us do. When we're honest with ourselves, men, we, we realize that we need that same kind of acceptance and understanding from our wives. What we need is what I call a, a third kind of listening, active listening. We make the response such as, yes, I understand. And you probably also felt like such and such. Or I had a similar experience when Mr. Black said, uh, that kind of thing to me, and I sure felt that way. That communicates I'm listening, I understand what you're talking about, and I accept you. Because we all crave to feel like we are normal. We have fears that maybe I'm the only one who thinks this way, or I'm the only one who has these feelings. And as we offer sympathy back, as we're listening and responding, particularly to a spouse who's, who's sharing these kinds of feelings, then we communicate back, uh, you're normal, I accept you, I understand you, I love you. Sometimes listening sympathetically, responding in that sort of way, is meeting the need of the moment and imparting words which edify. 
At other times, the need of the moment in a conversation between, in the relationship between a husband and wife is a more active role in talking. The number one complaint of wives against husbands when they come into marriage counseling is, he won't communicate with me. And guys, when we don't communicate and open up and share our lives with our wives, it communicates. And what it communicates is, you are not important enough for me to want to share with you my inner thoughts. Furthermore, I don't trust you. You may laugh at me. You may uh, spread everything I say to, to all your friends and tell Mary Jane and the others about it. Or you may just be too stupid to understand my deep thinking. When we share our lives and open up, then we communicate a totally different thing. We communicate, I love you, I respect you, I need you. You are not just a, a, a nice appendage to our home, somebody to, to cook and clean for me, but you're an important, vital part of my life. And men, we need to make a, a commitment to communicate adequately with our wives, to give that kind of edifying speech. Now, if the husband most commonly fails to give sympathetic uh, listening and, and proper, adequate communication, I think probably wives fail most often uh, in uh, meeting up to the standard of Ephesians 4.29 by nagging. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about nagging, complaining, argumentative women. It says it's better to live up on the corner of your rooftop, even in the snow, than it is to live in the house with a contentious woman. And it may seem edifying and grace imparting to you to nag, but I will clue you in it is not. It imparts grace to no one. Ephesians 5, the wives are commanded to respect their husbands. And we as men desperately need that. We need to feel that the home, our home is a castle. When we come home, we're not presented with a big list of all of our faults and the things that we've done wrong all day long. We need to feel accepted and respected. Nagging is not going to impart grace to us. We as parents also need to be serious about edifying speech in the home with our children. They need heavy doses of appreciation and praise, expressions of love and affection, sympathetic listening, communicating to them from our own lives. Furthermore, some of us need to quit griping about all the circumstances that our sovereign God brings into our lives. And we need to start embodying the uh, instructions that are given to us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice at all times. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. And as our words meet up to this pattern, we're going to find that our children are going to change. They'll be a different sort of people. Verse 30 is a motivational verse. Paul says here, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Because God is a person, because he lives inside of us, and because he can be grieved as another person can, then we should seek to live up to these standards so that we can please him. After all, he has sealed us into the day of redemption. We have much we owe him. Our whole eternal destiny, because he has saved us. And the least we could do is respond back to try to please him with our life. As if it wouldn't be enough to try to please ourselves by living in accordance with the truth. Then in verses 31 to 32, Paul gives the, the sixth example of what it means to live according to the truth as it is in Jesus. 
Again, a put off in verse 31 and a put on in verse 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. How many marriages are destroyed by a buildup of bitterness and resentment over real and imagined wrong suffered? Paul says, put it all away. By Jesus Christ, it's within your power to decide I'm not going to hold it against this person anymore. He says, put away all the wrath and anger and clamor. Stop making cutting, uh, nasty comments and complaints. Put away the slander and decide you're not going to talk to all your friends about how bad your husband or your wife has been. Slander their reputation in front of other people. Put aside all malice and stop seeking to have revenge, uh, punish the other person for what they've done to you. Instead, be kind to one another. Make determined efforts to perform acts of loving service, whether or not they're deserved. Be tender-hearted. Try to see things from the other person's viewpoint. If you do this, try to get into their soul and find out why they're responding, then sometimes you find that they're not responding to you just out of pure malice unadulterated evil, but because of their own hurts and their insecurities. And as you put yourself in their shoes, you find that that knowledge uh, softens your own anger and resentment because you see they're hurting as well. But above all, he says, be forgiving of one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Realize that you have sinned against God the infinite, eternal God who has created you and redeemed you in ways that can never be approached by the sins your spouse might do against you or your children or anyone else. And therefore, forgive. If we realize truly the depth of our own sin against God and the depth of His mercy to forgive us, then we realize that it's presumption in our part to withhold forgiveness from our spouse for something some much smaller, less significant thing that he or she may have done against us. We need help. We live in a corrupt society. It's perverted, does not understand the true way to live. We need to make an effort, determination to walk to a drumbeat different from that of the world around us. We need to chart a new course, the course of the new man, of the truth, as it is in Jesus. Some of you may feel right now, I failed in all of those. But take hope because God has created us anew. We have new power. This kind of lifestyle is possible for us to to attain in progressive degrees as we give ourselves to Him. Let's pray. Father, we offer you thanks because you tell us what we need to hear. You tell it like it is. Reveal to us the depth of our need for you. Lord, we're desperate for your work in our lives. We need radical surgery in ourselves. Help us learn to put off the old self, to be renewed in the spirits of our minds, 
and to put on the new self in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.